Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Today is uh, Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. And as we continue to observe Lent, as we are emptying ourselves of lesser things through fasting, we are really filling ourselves with greater things of the Lord. And so Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week. It is the celebration of of Jesus entering into Jerusalem with authority, but with a little bit of a twist that as the Jews were expecting a conquering king to arrive on a horse, here they had a suffering servant coming on a donkey. And so before we get into the word this morning, I want us to pray and ask the Lord to to really open up our eyes to his truth so that we may walk out of here um, knowing the guarantee of our salvation and all of the Lord saying, what a wonderful work he has done. Let let, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, I am so grateful that you are God and we are not. Thank you for your incredible mercy and grace that you have lavished upon us, that you have called us, that you have made yourself known to us, that you've opened up our eyes, you've transferred us out of darkness into your kingdom of light. You have made us your people and you or keeping us. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know their fears. You know their anxieties. You know their deepest, darkest secrets. You know their sin. You know what they're struggling with. Lord, can you minister to them? Lord, as I attempt to to preach your word, Can you take your word and deeply implant it into our hearts? May we stop looking to ourselves and may we look to you. May you confront us in our sin, confront us in our fears and our insecurities and our anxieties. May we find, realize the wonderful life, the eternal life that we have in you, the eternal security that we have in you. So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, it says turn to John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 10, verse 22, as we're continuing our series through the gospel of John. And again, what is John trying to do? John, in his gospel, is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And his ultimate purpose of showing us this is to invite us in so that we may believe and have life in his name. Now, one of the things that we're going to notice in Jesus' Jesus's ministry that is as Jesus continues in his ministry it seems that the opposition towards Jesus is growing stronger and stronger and so in our text today we're going to see how the Jews gather around Jesus 
and they ask him a question. And in a sense, on the surface level, it seems like in their question, they're just trying to find clarity so that they could believe in him. However, as we see how Jesus responds to the question and answered the question, and as he claims to be the Son of God and one with God the Father, we now see how they react and respond and how they want to seize him and kill him. And really what it shows us is they claim that they want to believe in him, but truly they had come to condemn him so that they could kill him. So let's look at John uh, chapter 10, verse 22 in our text and see how all of this unfolds. It says this, verse 22, Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So let's kind of just stop here and unpack that a little bit before we get in to see how Jesus responded to the question. But notice that John opens up with the detail telling us that it's the Feast of Dedication. Now it's important for us to understand that this Feast of Dedication wasn't any of the prescribed feasts in the Old Testament, but rather this feast came about between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the intertestamental period. And this was the feast that commemorated the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes that was led by Judas Judas Maccabees. In other words, we know this feast as the festival of lights or as Hanukkah. Now, normally, any time that John mentions a feast and what we've seen, somehow in the theme of of the passage, it always shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of that feast, how Jesus addresses that feast, in a sense, indirectly. But in this feast, he doesn't. There's no theme of Jesus being the light, but rather Jesus continues the theme of him being the shepherd. And so really we can see this feast as a typological marker. When did this take place in the ministry of Jesus? And you can also notice one of the things that the Jews surround Jesus with a question. Now, as we look in the English text, the question kind of seems simple. But in the Greek, this question is difficult for us to to render. And there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to what is the motives behind this question. So, for example, in the Greek, you can look at this question and what they're asking is the first way you can look at it is this. They're asking Jesus, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Please tell us plainly. But you can also render this question in a negative sense where they're saying to Jesus, how long are you going to annoy us? So in in a sense, if this is the question, how long are you going to annoy us? Then we can kind of see a sense of hostility towards Jesus. But if you look at the first question, how long are you going to keep us in suspense, then we can almost see their motives. They just certainly want clarity so that they could know the truth. And so as we find ourselves at a crossroad, was this more of a hostile question or more of a neutral question where they just want to know the truth? Which one do we go? Which route do we take? 
And what we've learned and what I've been trying to teach you as you study the word and you're uncertain about the clarity of the text, what do you look at? You look at the context of the text. So what's the context of the text? Is this a positive, neutral question or is this a negative, hostile question? Well, if you skip over to verse 31 and you skip over to verse 39, you're going to find out what do they want to do to Jesus. They want to stone him. They want to seize him. They want to kill him. In other words, what the context is suggesting for us that these Jews weren't coming to Jesus and just simply want clarity. They weren't like, can you just plainly tell us so that we can believe in you and worship you? But rather they came so that they could gather enough information and provide an adequate basis for their attack. And so this is their motives in this question. And what we're going to notice is Jesus is unlikely going to give in to their demands. What they want to find out from Jesus is just plainly tell us, are you the Messiah, yes or no? And what's really interesting is if you look at the all four synoptic gospels, Jesus never declared himself to be the Messiah in public among a Jewish audience. Yes, in private conversation, he revealed himself as the Messiah. And even with his inner circles among his disciples, he revealed himself as the Messiah. But he never revealed himself and claimed that title, the Messiah, in a public Jewish audience because the term Messiah in the Greek rendering of it, Christ, had too many political and military connotations. And Jesus was careful to avoid all of these overtones. And even if Jesus spoke with the utmost clarity that he was the Messiah and the Christ, the Jews still would not have had believed him because they could not be able to justify how the Messiah, the Christ, the conqueror, is also the suffering servant. And so even if Jesus told them plainly, they would not have believed. Now, for some of you, you might be wondering, well, if Jesus never clearly claimed himself to be the Messiah before a Jewish crowd, does that give him an excuse for their unbelief? And the answer is no. Because even the Apostle John was convinced that the records of Jesus' works and his words, even though it was restrained at times, was sufficient to bring people to believe that he truly was the Son of God. And so as the Jews demanded that Jesus tells them plainly that he is the Christ, look at how Jesus responded in verse 25. He says this, I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. In other words, when Jesus said, I did tell you, he's not referring to making an explicit statement before them, but rather he is saying all of my works, all of my words are pointing to who I am. And in a sense, through his words and his works, he did tell him for his works is done in the name of the Father to reveal the will of the Father, embodied in the power of the Father. All of those works cumulatively testify that the Father has sent him. 
Think about even the range of works that he has done. He restored a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He gave sight to a man born blind. Next week, we're going to see how he raises a dead man who is indisputably dead. And along with the tone and the content of his teaching, clearly he is testifying plainly to who he is and where he came from. And so Jesus says, in a sense, I did tell you, but you did not believe. And so the question that we might have is, out of all the works and the words that Jesus have done and given them, why in the world did the Jews not believe? Well, let's, let's look at verse 26, and we keep reading on in our text. Jesus says, but you don't believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what's the reason that Jesus gives them why they do not believe? He goes back to the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep. And the reason why the Jews do not hear him, the reason why they do not understand him, the reason why they do not believe in him and they do not follow him, because they are not of his sheep. And then he draws a contrast. What does he, his sheep do? They hear his voice. They know him and therefore they follow him. But look at what else Jesus gives to his sheep in verse 28. And this is where I want to spend most of our time. And because I think these verses are so important for us in our walk with the Lord, especially today. Look at what Jesus gives his own sheep. Look at verse 28 again. What does he do to his sheep? What does he give them? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So if you're taking notes, the very first thing that, God, that Jesus gives his sheep eternal life like like in the sheep metaphor jesus has already said that he gives his sheep life life into the full in verse 10 he gives them abundant life but now in this text what he does is he plainly states what that life looks like it is eternal it is eternal life now think about eternal life here the consequences of eternal life is that they will never perish. Like, just stop and just think about it. What's the consequences of eternal life? They'll never perish. You'll never be destroyed. You'll never perish. You always will have life. Why? Not because you're great. Not because you're awesome, but because he gives it to you. But look at the second thing that he also gives. Not only does he give eternal life, but look at the second one. Look at the second part of verse 28. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So not only does he give his sheep eternal life, but if you're taking notes, he also gives them eternal security. And what I want to do is I want to show you how the one promise is grounded in the other promise. Think about this. The promise of eternal life and the consequences of eternal life is that you will never perish. That promise is grounded in the promise of eternal security. In other words, if you have eternal life, which means you will never perish, you also will have eternal security, which means no one can snatch you out of his hands. In other words, you cannot have a wolf, you cannot have a predator, you cannot have a thief, you cannot have a robber or a hired hand, or even the sheep take you from the shepherd. For the good shepherd is so good that he promises eternal life that is grounded into eternal security. And if someone can snatch you away from the sheep, or the sheep even wanders off, that means the shepherd has failed in his assignment and he can no longer be the good shepherd because his promises prove to be empty. But what does this good shepherd promise? I promise you I will give you eternal life, which means you will never perish. And that is grounded in a promise of eternal security. Even though those promises sound good and we'll talk more about it, think about the rest of what Jesus is saying. This assignment, this promise of persevering the sheep, preserving the, the sheep, this action of the good shepherd is not independent of the father. Look at verse 29. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Like, like think about what, what this means. Are we in Jesus' hands or we are in the father's hands? And what does he say? You're both. Because the action of Jesus in keeping you and preserving you is not independent of the father. That means that is the Father himself is ultimately standing behind the preservation work of Jesus' sheep. And so if someone thinks that hypothetically, well, maybe we think Jesus might be frail for such a lofty assignment. What Jesus is basically saying, surely they should recognize the Father's commitment. Who can steal from God? Who has the strength? To overpower, who has the, uh, the, the wit to outwit the sovereign God? And the answer is no one, not even you. If the Father is greater than all things, greater than all people, there is no force, no being that is sufficient to sever the relationship between the people of God the believers, the sheep, and the shepherd. What should that mean for us? It should provide us rest, 
comfort, security, hope. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 3 to the Christians, he says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. But like, just stop, stop and think about this for a second. Both the Father and the Son are so engaged in this perfect preservation work. No wonder Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying Jesus and the Father are one person because we know they are distinct, God the Father, God the Son, but rather what Jesus is saying is that he and the Father are perfectly one in what they do. In other words, what Jesus does, the Father does. What the Father does, Jesus does. And what that should do for us, it gives us rest. Think about it even from this perspective. God the Father does not tolerate you because Jesus likes you. It's not like some of your children's friends. You really can't stand them, but you just tolerate them because your children like them. Don't chuckle because you know that's true. And God the Father doesn't really love you and Jesus really tolerates you. It's like, I really have no choice. I don't know why he likes them, why he loves them, why he's sending me. This is not what's going on. In other words, what that means is that the triune God is committed to you and loving you and keeping you. And what the Father does, the Son does. And what the Son does, the Father does. So what does that mean for us in our walk with the Lord? So many times when we think about salvation, we think about something that is so fragile. We think about something that is not a guarantee. We use words like, I hope so. But what kind of terms is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about hopeful terms or certain terms? He's talking about certainty. In other words, what he is saying is the salvation is not I hope so. The salvation is a guaranteed. But guaranteed on who? The one who believes or the one who's done the saving work? Not the one who believes, for we are fragile people. But on the one who's done the saving work. And what this should do for us as a believer, it should kind of stir in our hearts and our affections that he is committed to us. How do I know my salvation will be made complete? How do I know that I'll never wander into sin forever? Because he is committed to me. I am his sheep. He knows me and I know him. I hear his voice. I follow him. I know him and he is committed in keeping me. And that is the truth that I cling to. Because if I'm able to wander away from the Lord, if I'm able to lose what he has given me, either he is a liar or he is not powerful enough to keep his promise. And we know both is not true, which means the problem lies with I am believing in the wrong thing because what I'm doing is I'm thinking that the preservation of my salvation is dependent on me and my performance, but it's not. It's dependent on the Lord, 
and the promises that he has made. Now, what that doesn't do to me, that doesn't give me a license just to keep on living willy-nilly and keep on sinning. No, because who do I belong to? I belong to Jesus, and this is why we will go back to the unity with Christ. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. I am united to him, and he is committed in keeping me and conforming me more and more into his image as he is transforming me from one degree of glory to another. And he is faithful who have started the work, and he is faithful in going to complete that work. And so in our struggle against sin, in our times of fears and doubts, in those times where I wonder, does God really love me? Does he really care about me? Is he really committed to me? Because I find myself in my heart wanting to leave him, feeling like I can't keep on keeping on. What do I do? I quit looking to myself. I look to him. He is committed to me. And he has promised me that no one will snatch me out of his hands. Why? Because I'm united. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Just like the Father and the Son are united and no one can separate the Father and the Son because they are one. So no one can separate us us from Christ because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, which means we are one. And this is why when the apostles write, when they talk about do this, do that, what do they always refer to first or later? Since you are in Christ, because you are in Christ, because of what Christ has done for you, now you can do. For it is not you doing it, but rather it is Christ living inside of you that is doing it. What wonderful words Jesus gives to the audience, even though these Jews who confronted Jesus was not part of his sheep. And so the Jews had asked for a plain statement that would clarify whether Jesus was the Messiah. And if you really think about the answer we just read, he gave them far more than just plainly claiming to be the Messiah. And look at how they responded, which in a sense reveals their motives. Look at verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so what we see is the desire to execute Jesus sprang from the perception that Jesus was claiming to be one with God, which of course was correct. But unlike the other situation, what we notice is every time the Jews tried to stone Jesus or seize Jesus, what would happen? He would elude them. He would escape them. But what is Jesus doing now? He's not escaping them, but now he is confronting them. And he asked them this question. Of all the great miracles that I have done from the Father, Which one is incurring wrath? 
In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's simultaneously claiming that all he has done has been the work of God himself. And now he's demanding his, his accusers to stop and think about, through, think about his life, think about all that he has done. It shouldn't there be any strange objection of healing a paralytic or opening up the eyes of the blind? We know, God, we don't, we know that only those who belong to God can do those things. So shouldn't you stop and think about it? But the Jews in their anger were so angry that they couldn't think out the implications of Jesus' work. Their biggest concern now was not what Jesus did, but rather what Jesus said, that he who is a mere man claimed to be God. Now think about that statement, what they're saying uh, in verse 33, the last sentence, because you being a man make yourself God. Think about the irony of those words. Jesus didn't make himself to be God, but rather he is God. He is the unique son, utterly and obedient to his father, doing everything his father does. But there has been indeed a status of change when it comes to the son. For the son was always God, but not always man so basically the jews have flipped it and reversed it for jesus was always god but he was not always man and at the incarnation he took on flesh and he is known as the god man fully god and also fully man and even in his resurrection and ascension he will always be fully god fully man representing both god and man as the son of man the mediator the son of god and in the irony they have everything wrong and look at how jesus responds now this is a difficult part i'm not going to unpack it too much um just maybe give you a snippet an idea of what's going on but look at verse 34 jesus answered them isn't it written in your law I said you are gods. If he called those whom the word of God came to gods and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I'm doing them, you don't believe me. Believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. So in verse 34, it's kind of complicated, and there's so many different options in our interpretation. I'm not going to give you any options. I'm going to just give you a gist of what he's trying to do here. But what Jesus does in his response, again, these guys are angry, they are a mob, they want to kill him. And really what Jesus does in this response, he kind of like calls a little bit of a timeout and says, stop before you act. And he appeals to the law of God. And he quotes Psalm 86 verse 2. In Psalm 86 verse 2, uh, Psalm 82 verse 6, sorry, says this, I said, you are gods. You're all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. So by Jesus quoting this text, what argument is he making? In other words, the argument that he is making is, 
Scripture proves that the word God, lowercase g, is legitimately used to describe others other than God himself. And if there are others whom God addresses as God, lowercase g, and sons of the Most High, then on what biblical basis should anyone object when Jesus says, I am the Son of God? Even the nation of Israel was referred to as the Son of God. In other words, what Jesus is doing, he's not using this argument to prove that he is God or the Son of God, but rather recognizing the hostility towards him. He's stopping them with a shock, a little jab, and say, stop before you act. Just think this through. And in the heart of the opposition, what they hear Jesus was saying, they're partly right, he does make himself equal with God. They're partly wrong because even though Jesus is equal to God, he is not competing against God. And they're completely wrong because they've not grasped their own scripture to see how Jesus fulfills them. They've not known God well enough to perceive that Jesus is the revelation of God because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am revealing the Father to you. If you know me, you know the Father. So what Jesus does, he just kind of gives them a little shock, a little curveball for them to stop and think things through. But he's not using this argument to claim his unique sonship but rather he wants them to think through the works that he has done before they act. And then he points again to his work. He says, look at verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing my father's works, don't believe me. But if I'm doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And so in other words, once Jesus kind of got them to stop for a little bit, this mob violence. He says, look, if you don't want to believe my words and what I'm saying, just think through for, for what I've done. Everything I've done has been in the Father. He doesn't expect them to believe him, but if what he does is the same of what the Father does, shouldn't that kind of cause some pause for them? Even if, they, yet, if it, they cannot yet bring themselves to believe Jesus by believing his words, the least they can do is think about his works, which includes the miracles. And in their reflections on these works, they might learn and understand that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. And even though when we look at this text as we come to an end and we see the preciousness of this text, to them, it was further evidence of blasphemy. And John tells us, what were they trying to do? They're trying to seize him. They're trying to arrest him. And they were unable to do so. And even though John doesn't tell us how Jesus escaped their grasp, we know the reason why he escaped their grasp is because his time had not yet come. And then verse 40, we're almost done. Verse 40 says this, so he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing early and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. 
In other words, I find it interesting that as Jesus is in the city, a majority of the crowd, how did they respond? They did not believe. And then when Jesus moved from the city out into the country, they remembered the words of John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist did not perform a sign, they remembered that everything that John said about this man was true, and they believed. It was almost kind of like, maybe we can read into a little too much, and I I want us to be careful, but it was almost that those that are at the epicenter of the Jewish religion were unable to accept Jesus, and those who lived out in the country, the outcasts, the marginalized, the poor, What happened? They saw, they believed. And we see now Jesus will not return to the city until the Passover. Now, let's stop here and talk a little bit about application. You think about these Jews who who came to Jesus and asked them plainly, like, just tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And Jesus gave them so much more as he is so explicit to his identity and his purpose. And yet the Jews could not understand. And the issue with the Jews is wasn't because they needed more information, but rather they needed illumination. They needed their eyes to be opened up. And the reason why they could not hear the reason why they could not see, and the reason why they could not understand is because Jesus says they were not his sheep. For his sheep hear his voice. They know him. They follow him. Think about this. What's more glorious than knowing Jesus? Being known by Jesus. And to be known by Jesus is to be held secure in his grips, the grips of his grace. No one, not a thing, can snatch a believer from the hands of Jesus and from the hands of the Father. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. They are both divine, acting with power and purpose that no human or any force can negate. So what does that mean for us? It means we can rest. It means we can have peace. It means our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in how we behave. Our hope is not in how we perform. Our hope is not in how good we do or how little we sin. What is our hope in? Our hope is in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us on the cross and his commitment to us in keeping us. We are his and he is ours. We are in him. And that unity of Jesus Christ allows us to look more and more like him. So as you think about your week, 
Anybody had a good week, a bad week? Anybody struggled with sin this week? Anybody feel like they failed this week? Anybody said, You're never gonna, I'm never going to do it again, and what did you end up doing? Anybody feel like you walk in here and you're like, I'm unworthy to enter into the presence of God because of how I behave this week? You feel like you are a lost cause, that God doesn't really love you, he just simply tolerates you? But what does the Bible tell us? What the Bible teaches us is that he is committed to us. Now, we might not understand why he's so committed to us because we're only committed to people that are committed to us and that we like. And yet he's committed to us. He made a promise to us. Paul says we're hidden in Christ, in God. We're united with Christ. Last week we said for Christ to abandon us is to abandon himself. For God to let you go is to go against his character, to make him out to be a liar. And what can God never do? He cannot lie. He cannot say anything that is untrue. So how do we get from feeling defeated to resting in him, putting our hope and our confidence in him? Not by, this week I'm going to do a better week. There's three steps to have a better week. No, by quit looking to yourself and look to him. And even as we get ready to the table, what does this table remind us of? This table reminds us of not what we have done, but what, what he has done. The work he has accomplished for us on the cross by giving his body for us, by shedding his blood for us. This table also reminds us of the assurance that we have of his people, his commitment to us. And so when we're eating and when we're drinking, those are ministering to our senses, to our eyes, to our ears, to our taste, to our smell, as we are reminded his commitment to me. Let me take my eyes off of myself. Let me stop putting my hope and my commitment to Jesus and let me put my hope in His commitment to me. It's kind of like that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Yes, Lord, I know it. I can feel it. But if my preservation was dependent on my commitment to Him, I will fail, but it's not. It's on his commitment to me. So when you find yourself struggling with sin, when you find yourself unworthy, when you find yourself wandering, when the devil is putting lies into your, to your mind of saying God does not love you, he's not committed to you, he only kind of tolerates you. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus just teaches that no one can snatch you. I am committed to you. Paul even says, what can separate us from the love of God? And he describes a whole list, which means no one and no thing, nothing. So what do we do? We come and we sit at this table. We praise the Lord and we thank the Lord for the wonderful work he has done for us and the commitment that he has for us. And then we ask the Lord, help me 
to take my eyes off of myself. Help me to keep my eyes on you. Even during this, this Holy Week, this is why I think fasting is so good for us because what fasting does is we're emptying ourselves of lesser things and filling ourselves with greater things. We're saying no to ourselves and we're saying yes to him as we're reminded that we're not dependent on these things. We're dependent on him. And as we come on Friday and we think about the bloody cross, we feel the weight of our sins as it prepares us for Resurrection Sunday, for death was not the end. Because what the resurrection proves is that all the promises and all the claims that Jesus made is not maybe or I hope so, but is yes in Jesus Christ. So as we get ready to distribute these elements, like meditate on the assurance you have in Christ. Meditate on the promises this morning that he has given you. Ask the Lord to help you fix your eyes on him. Help you to stop looking to yourself and start looking to him, to rest in him and to trust him. And may these truths, may these promises become more real and real in your life as you experience them in your battle against sin. And this morning, if, if you're not a believer, just simply abstain for this. These promises are not for you. It is only for those who are in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying that because that's the reality. But you can become part of his people because what John is trying to do is invite you in to believe so that you may have life in his name and that life is eternal so that you will never perish. And for you, if that is you, instead of partaking in the cup, use this as an opportunity to humble yourself, repent, and call upon the Lord. And then invite others in to walk with you. Let me pray. Let's distribute these elements as we look to Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you are committed to us and saving us, and keeping us, and giving us life that we will never perish, a guaranteed. We love you, and we praise you, Lord, and as we participate at this table, Lord, may these truths become real. As we meditate upon all the wonderful work you've done for us, may we look to you, trust you, knowing that you are committed to us. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. I just want to read parts of the passages that we've read last week and this week. This is what Jesus is telling you this morning as you hold up the bread and the cup. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. As Jesus made these promises, started off with him laying down his life buying you, purchasing you with his body and his blood. The body of Christ given to you, eat it in remembrance of him. The blood of Christ given to you, the new covenant that you have, drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take a moment and just thank the Lord? Thank, thank the Lord for what he's done for you and the promise that he has made for you. Thank the Lord for the work that he has accomplished for you and the work that he is going to finish for you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for all of these wonderful promises. Thank you that you have bought us with your blood, that we belong to you, and that you belong to us. Thank you that you are committed to us in keeping us. And Lord, help us to walk in joyful obedience. Help us to trust you and look to you. Help us to cling to all the promises that you have given us. Lord, minister to our hearts. You know each and every one of us. You know our insecurities. And can you speak to us as your word has been proclaimed? As we trust in you, rest in you, look to you, and follow you in joyful obedience. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our good shepherd?